Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. The landscape of things right now is so polarizing and so politicized. It's hard to believe that there's a person out there that is coming into the data knowing that they have a cognitive bias and looking for ways that I'm wrong. And what I wanted to do is just find appropriate measures. Like, I want to make sure that what we're doing is effective, number one. And also, how are they effective? What's the best metrics? What's the best methods? What's the best type of mask? I was looking for those type of things. But when I looked at the real world randomized controlled trials that we have plenty of them showing the effectiveness, I was just shocked. And I wanted to make sure people know about this so we can really focus our attention on things that are effective. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today, we have Sean Stevenson, who's the author of Sleep Smarter and the creator of the Model Health Show, and oh, by the way, has the number one health podcast in the United States. We discussed his new book, Eat Smarter. It's a really, really good book. It's one of my favorite health books. But what we also did was we dug deep on the world of COVID. We talked masks, we talked susceptibility, we talked what's really going on with this pandemic that we're in right now. You will see a side of Sean, frankly, that I have not experienced before because all of this is coming out. His health principles are all coming out through his passion for health during this pandemic. And he dug in and he did the research and the research is mind-blowing. So you will love all the information that's in his new book and you will love his opinion on what's happening in the world right now in real time with this pandemic. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Sean Stevenson. Sean, welcome to the show. Grateful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome, man. You know, I uh, got a little copy here of this baby. For those of you watching on video, you will see a beautiful orange. And this is, I think this is the only orange book I've seen with an avocado right in the middle and a light bulb. Really, really smart marketing. You got a lot to be proud of in here. I've been reading this and I want to dig into it. So... By the way, I just uh, I followed your instructions and I just did a tablespoon of olive oil with my breakfast. And uh, I got to tell you, 
it uh, made me feel uh, made me feel full about 20 minutes after I had it. So that's a good thing, right? I mean, it's really just looking at what the data says, you know, and also leaning into what our ancestors have been doing, you know, and utilizing some of these foods for quite some time. And like you just mentioned, one of the studies that I shared in the book found that olive oil doesn't just trigger the release of one satiety hormone, it triggers the release of three of our major satiety hormones. And it's been found to be directly correlated with reduced body fat, improved insulin sensitivity, all this good stuff. And it's not that we got to like do some olive oil shots. You could do that if you're into it, but just even adding it to your food, you know, mixing it in there, especially as a finisher, you know, adding it on top of your greens, your salads, things like that. If we could just get some of these good things in our bodies, add in, we can get a lot more benefits. But is it is it wrong sort of like prophylactically to have it, you know, in the morning, at, you know, like take your vitamins, do a tablespoon of olive oil just to make sure you get it in. Is that is that good or is that overkill? For me, it's always about what feels best to you. You know, like if that is your approach to doing it, that and it, and it feels good and you're pumped about it, that's what that's what matters more than just about anything. You know, and some of that stuff we talk about in the book as well, some of the placebo aspects and some of the nocebo aspects and how our psychology affects what food does in our bodies. And the research is really just going to blow people's minds. But ultimately, at the end of the day, number one is doing what feels good, doing what works for your routine, for your system. There's so much about our metabolic uniqueness that we cover in this book, in your unique metabolic fingerprint, really. And uh, so if that's what feels best, that's the way to go. All right. So we're going to dig into all of that. I thought what we would do here is to break the show into two parts. The uh, the first part will, I'd like to dig into your research on masks. And the second part is I want to look into the Eat Smarter book. Since this is a part two episode, we can skip a lot of the backgrounds and we'll let that live where the, uh, the first episode that we did together is. And uh, we'll link that up in the show notes. But, you know, at the recording of this episode, I am uh, living in Hermosa Beach. And when I walk down the street, I have, they now have three mask police that stop me if I'm not wearing a mask and will give me a ticket. And that is the world that we're living in right now. And there's a lot of misinformation around the effectiveness of it. So you have... Uh, fired me up and a lot of other people about the facts about mask wearing. And you're the only guy that I know who has not done it in a way of, hey, this is my opinion, but you've done it in a way where you have cited not one research research article, but like a thousand research articles. <laughs> I'm exaggerating slightly, but you put you did the research in there. And the first question before we get into this, and we don't have to go crazy here, but I just want yeah. to talk about a little bit of it. My first question is, why did you decide to stick your toe into this pond when you knew that 50% of the people were going to push back on you? No matter what you did, no matter what research you showed, you were going to get pushback. Why'd you do it? That's such a great question. And the answer is, I didn't know. I didn't know that there would be any controversy around this because for myself, I'm a scientist. I've been in this space for 19 years, you know, and 10 years in clinical practice. I just went and looked at the data and I was actually going into it, understanding that I have a cognitive bias. And that unfortunately, the, the, 
the landscape of things right now is so polarizing and so politicized, it's hard to believe that there's a person out there that is coming into the data knowing that they have a cognitive bias and looking for ways that I'm wrong. And what I wanted to do is just find appropriate measures. Like I want to make sure that what we're doing is effective, number one, and also how are they effective? What's the best metrics? What's the best methods? What's the best type of mask? I was looking for those type of things. But when I looked at the real world randomized controlled trials that we have plenty of them showing the effectiveness, I was just shocked. And I wanted to make sure people know about this so we can really focus our attention on things that are effective. And so one of the first ones that I shared with folks was from the BMJ, British Medical Journal, very prestigious. This is a, it's a randomized controlled trial. And this was looking at inf confirmed infections, viral infections in healthcare workers from 15 different hospitals. And the importance here is that a randomized controlled trial is looking at a specific intervention and a specific result. Whereas a lot of the data that people are hearing and they've been inundated with are observational studies and or theoretical models. Literally, these are theories on how this stuff works versus real world randomized controlled trials to actually see what happens. And so in this particular study, folks were randomized into three different groups. One was mandated to wear cloth mask. Another group was mandated to wear surgical mask. Another group was allowed to do general practice, intermittently wear the mask. A couple folks didn't wear a mask. It was a control group who were just allowed to do basically whatever. There wasn't a strictly enforced mask mandate in the study. And so after the researchers compiled all the data, they found that the folks who were wearing the cloth mask had 13 times more infections. They had 13, tire, 13 times higher rate of infection than the folks wearing the surgical mask and the control group who were, again, allowed to do general practice. And so just that in and of itself, I thought we should have a conversation about the proliferation of cloth mask recommendations because the, quote, task force and health authorities were saying, just wear anything, anything helps. When these researchers uncovered that, and these are specifically their words, they said, quote, the penetration of the cloth mask by virus particles was almost 97%. And they found that the scientists concluded that they collected enough data saying that this type of mask can potentially increase your risk of infection because here's the quote, direct quote, moisture retention and pore filtration may result in increased risk of infection with cloth mask and that cloth mask should not be recommended. And what they were saying was that is could potentially create a microclimate around your face that makes it even more permeable for all manner of nastiness to go in and out of the mask. And it, this goes back to my cognitive bias, which is once we cover our mouths, what kind of habitat, what kind of environment is getting created in that mask? And could it potentially lead to increased risk of something happening? Whereas the popular narrative is just wear something, it's going to help because it's not about you. It's going to help so that your particles get, don't get to other people. And what folks, again, were really looking to was you see the images, you know, like you could see somebody with this fancy photography, how the, you know, how they're, uh, when they're, when they're coughing, that the particles, the air, quote, aerosols and droplets, this is where we're really at. They're not going out as far. But the problem is, if we had the type of photography that could actually see the amount of virus particles that are in that room, when that person does that cough, you couldn't see anything else but virus particles. They're freaking everywhere. The room you're in right now, the room I'm in right now, there are 
trillions upon trillions upon trillions of virus particles. We are immersed in them. And so these folks that have whatever confirmed case of any virus strain, it's all over their bodies. It's all over their, their skin. It's all over everything. And again, the theory is like, if we just do this, this will reduce the rate of infection. But again, in the real world, that wasn't found to be true. And um, just one more point of emphasis here. Uh, there was another randomized controlled trial, and this was in the International Journal of Nursing Studies. And they looked at six healthcare settings, eight community settings, and five as source control, and concluded that medical masks were not effective, surgical masks. And they concluded, this is a direct quote from it, cloth masks were even less effective. And again, what the hell is less effective than not effective? That means that they found higher rates of infections by wearing a cloth mask. We should be talking about this. This doesn't mean that you throw the mask idea out the window. Let's talk about it. Let's just have a conversation. And one small added point here. In this particular study, they did find that there was some effectiveness in community settings of masks on the surface. But I actually went and read their references. This is what other people don't do. I'm not just thumbing through and finding the points that I like. I'm digging around to find out where can I be wrong and also looking at where are they saying this thing is true. And so the studies that actually found some benefit in community settings, here's what the study actually said. This was done with some uh, on a college campus and they found that this op, we observed, this is a direct quote, we observed a substantial 43% reduction in the incidence of influenza infection in the mask and hand hygiene group, all right? Compared to a control group but this estimate was not statistically significant. For me, that still sounds great. 43% reduced infection, but here's the thing. There were no substantial reductions in influenza-like illness or laboratory-confirmed influenza in the mask-only group compared to a control group who didn't wear a mask. Didn't make a difference. There was no difference. And that's what happens when you actually read the studies and you go and read the references. And again, I'm not saying that a mask can't be helpful in some dynamics, But the real world data we have shows again and again that they're not effective, yet this has been the thing impressed upon us in culture. And the question is why? And truly, at this point, after seeing what's happening in our world today, it's it's truly a distraction. It's distracting people from what's most important, which is getting our citizens healthier. That is the number one risk factor, the thing that makes us most susceptible. The CDC reported 94% of the folks who passed away with confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2 had 2.6 pre-existing chronic diseases, 94% of them. And yet the media only frames up the 6% saying all perfectly healthy people are dying too. And completely just ignoring the fact that our society is very sick and susceptible. We can get people healthier. If we would have had an initiative when all this started, wear a mask, but also make sure you get your 20 minute walk in each day because the Appalachian State University found going for a short 20 minute walk can boost the, the, the activity or natural killer cells, which are proven to be incredibly effective at killing SARS-CoV-2 infected cells. Wear your mask, get your 20 in. Make sure you're getting your sleep. This is a time, it's a natural, national emergency. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to reduce our intake of processed foods. But they didn't do that shit because they never do that shit. They've never done it. And that was the thing that I think I was thinking we were better than we were. I was like, this is our chance. They're finally going to say what's most important, but they've never done that. Why would I think they're going to change their story now? What they're doing right now is getting people to believe that their body is not adequate. Healthy people are deemed sick until proven healthy. And 
the the mask whole thing that, that's going on with the mask is making it that it's our fault. If these people would just wear a mask, this would go away. And if you look at the data, we have 90% compliance, 80% compliance. And to the degree, I'll sh- I have to share this if that's okay. The last thing where we're Please. at today. All right. Preach. I put this out. I put these studies that I already shared out real world randomized controlled trials from, from the most prestigious journals months and months ago. All right. This is back in like June. I, I've been sharing this stuff. Uh, April, May, June. Now we finally have again affirmative data from what I've been saying from the beginning coming directly from the CDC. And anything that I share, of course, I want people to go and look it up because, but you have to, you have to look at it through the eyes and be, be willing to shift your perspective a little bit because some of this stuff is hard to, to accept because we've been told by the people that we are entrusting with taking care of us. And so the CDC did a randomized controlled trial, took a random selection of folks with confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2, all right, random selection of them. And what they discovered was that 71% of the people who contracted SARS-CoV-2 always wore their mask. These were people who reported to always wear their mask, 71% of them. But on the media, they'll tell you it's these people, these anti-maskers, they're out here super spreading. These folks always wore their mask and they're thinking like, how the fuck did I get? So I'm always wearing my mask, all right? 71% of them. Add to the people who reported often wearing their mask and the people who always wore their mask, that's 85% of the folks versus 3% who said they never wore a mask, all right? The story is very, very different here. Now, here's what's most important about this study. The researchers were going into it through the lens that the mask is effective. And instead of them seeing the data and saying, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't adding up right. They were simply trying to affirm and find why the people who always wore their mask still got infections. And so what they found was that the people who always wore their mask versus the control group group who got confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2, they went out to eat more often. And so they took their mask off to eat. And so that was the loophole they found. If they would just, and this was a small percentage of them still, if they would just not take their mask off to eat, then their mask would be more effective. But here's the thing, the control group, this wasn't people who didn't, they just didn't have SARS-CoV-2. These were sick people as well. They they had a viral infection or bacterial infection. They were symptomatic of something. They just didn't have SARS-CoV-2. 75% 75% of these people always wore their mask and they still got sick with a different type of infection versus less than 5% of the folks who never wore a mask. 75 versus five. The story is very different. And to wrap this thing up, at the end of the day, again, people are still going to look at the data. Well, it wasn't supposed to protect them. It was supposed to protect other people. What the shit? It's insane. It goes... It goes both ways. Like the mask, it's like the idea of, you know, I'm putting this condom on to protect you, even though it's like perforated <laughs> with all of these holes and it's, it's not, it's not going to protect me, but it's definitely going to protect you. It goes both ways. This is just, comp- yeah. lo- it's logical, but our sense of logic, science is not very scientific right now. And I keep pointing back to what happens in the real world. We've got theoretical models that friends of mine have colleagues who are saying, we'll save 200,000 lives if everybody would just wear a mask. This is a fucking theory. It's a theoretical model. It's not based on the real world data because these models are only as effective as their underlying belief, their underlying premise. 
The underlying premise is flawed. The entire theoretical model is flawed. You're, you're going to love this. So I had a friend who just went to Vegas and she's sitting at the pool and a woman comes over to her and says, look, um, if there's any way that you could, in between sips of your margarita, if there's any way that you could put the mask on while you're sitting here at the pool, that would really help us out you know, quite a bit from spreading it. And so my friend said, so... I got a question for you. When I go into the casino and nobody is wearing a mask, is that allowed? She said, well, yeah, because you know people are smoking and we can't stop them from wearing the mask. She said, so it's okay to smoke in the casino without a mask, but it's not okay to be at the pool outside. Like, are you like... Are you like we have gone so crazy? All right. So a couple of things I want to just dig into and then we'll wrap this mask up. But I want to I, I want to debunk some of this based on some of the research that you've looked at. We talk about particulate size, like everybody's talking yeah. about the size. And I listened to uh, I don't know if you heard the uh, the Tony Robbins interview, maybe about four or five months ago, where he interviewed some guy on the mask. Did you hear that one where he had like three or four experts? It was a podcast panel. Yeah. Those are many of my friends were on that. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the guys, um, I don't remember who it was, but one of the guys was saying he was laughing at the mask because of the particulate size of COVID and how it's going right through. Can you explain that to me? Is that, is that a true statement? Can it go through the mask? Yeah. So, and this is a great question. And this is what the science is really relying on or the Suppose science is relying on the, the, the ability of the mask to stop because the, the, the virus particles are traveling through our aerosols and droplets. But that's not the end of the story. As I already mentioned, these virus particles are everywhere. Viruses are the most dominant thing on planet Earth. There's more viruses than anything. And so, again, our underlying understanding of these things. It's so superficial. It's just like, oh, guess what? We've got a strong enough microscope where we can see these viruses and this is what they're doing. Eventually, I know this for certain, we're going to have a strong enough microscope where we're going to find out that the viruses have viruses, right? And we're just going to keep on digging until we find this is the true cause of disease. The true cause of disease though is susceptibility, is a dysfunctional immune system, right? Because when they, when they mapped out the human genome, they discovered that humans, we, our genome, we are 8% endogenous retroviruses. We are literally viruses ourselves. Our immune system that has protected, at this point, we have 65 million confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2 as of this recording. 63 million people survived. But you never hear that. You never hear that. And how do they survive without all of the, you know, the new things coming down the pipe to, 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 to protect them? Because their immune system did what it's supposed to do. We were told at the beginning, we only have, we, we don't have any innate immunity to this particular virus strain. But there's this thing called the adaptive immune system that has enabled us as humanity to evolve and make it to this place. And again, 63, it's, it's not even, this isn't even a joke. It's not hearsay. This isn't funny. 63 million people have con con confirmed cases of SARS-CoV-2 who didn't die. Right. But not to negate like the media has the folks who have lost their lives. There is a lot of controversy around those circumstances and how deaths are being tracked. But still, something came along and basically we were in such a state of susceptibility with 94 percent of the folks having 
2.6 pre-existing chronic diseases that you can look at this through the lens that our, our chronic diseases loaded the gun and COVID potentially pulled the trigger. And so going back to your question, in that conversation that Tony had with incredible experts, again, many of these folks are my friends and colleagues. These are Nobel Prize winning scientists, but they censored that video. They censored that, that report. They took it down. And these folks, because they're not fitting the popular narrative, like uh, Dr. Alan Preston, prestigious epidemiologist, really good friend of mine. Him and I were texting all the time, conversating. He told me from the very beginning, he's like, Sean, epidemiologist, we know this already. When you see this percentage of confirmed cases in the, in the population, we know that it's 10, 15, 20 times more people have the virus already, but they don't know it because they don't have any symptoms. Their immune system took care of it. Right. So then we start testing all these healthy people and the cases we have in a case demic. Now the cases have shot up, but what people don't realize as we have more confirmed cases, it presses the mortality rate down so low that people have thrown around these statistics, you know, 99.97% survival rate. You know, we didn't even survival rate wasn't even a term, right? But it's just trying to frame it in a way like most people are the I'm almost if we're really looking at the numbers, the number is so amazingly empowering to know that you will be okay. But yet that's not what the media is doing. And so on the mask front, again, what, what they talked about. All right. So Bill Nye, the science guy, he just did a video recently, which, you know, quote, went viral. It's funny we use that term. Yeah. And what he was doing- <laughs> I actually never put that together. That's great. <laughs> what, what he was doing, and that's what a meme is. A meme really- Translate it's a it's a it's a mind virus. That's what it is. Mm, all right. And so Bill Nye, he had like a, a, a it, that that game on the prices right. It looked like I think it's called Plinko or Clinko, where you mm. drop the little thing down, it goes and it kind of yeah, ticks yeah, yeah, its yeah. way down. There's little, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so he showed that. He was like, This is the the fibers of the mask work like these little barriers. And he dropped a couple balls down, like maybe two, into this little Plinko. Uh, thing. And he just showed how the ball will eventually get stuck and get trapped here. And he's like, clearly the mask works. And by the way, I saw Bill Nye, and this is true. I've I haven't even shared this. I haven't had a chance to talk with it about this. At the beginning of the pandemic, the beginning of the shutdown, at the same restaurant I was at, all right? I swear to God, <laughs> I saw him. I was like, oh, that's Bill, Bill Nye. Nye. Yeah. All right. Okay. But he's like, clearly the mask work, everybody wear a mask and this thing, you know, we'll get this under control. What, what Bill, unfortunately, is obviously incredibly intelligent, awesome person, but it's looking at things through the lens of very rote elementary level science. Because the truth is when he drops those two balls in, trying to demonstrate what a virus is doing, trying to penetrate that mask, what he should have been doing is dumping a fucking 10 pound bucket of balls into that thing to demonstrate how viruses are interacting with that mask and seeing the virus particles go all over the floor, flood the thing and just make a complete mess because that's how it works. That's how it really works. And so we know that viruses, I mean, masks are not even very effective for pre preventing bacterial infections and viruses, you can fit hundreds, even thousands of virus particles into one bacteria cell. And it's not just traveling through aerosols and droplets. 
they are, even from the environment, this is some of the best science that we know, even from the atmosphere, there are hundreds of billions of virus particles that are just raining down on every three by three foot square foot place on planet earth every day. Many virus particles are coming from the atmosphere, traveling from other cities, other states, and even other continents. And we have the arrogance to think that we can stop the spread of any of these things through a piece of cloth. It's just blown. I'm, I have to please have some compassion on me, my, you know, my, my passion no, uh, on this, listen, but it's just, listen, we are, we are walking around like fucking robots right now and nobody is listening. Nobody is giving us another alternative way to look at it. You know, what's really interesting to me is I've seen it said before that we have the, the reason why this one is different is because we have no innate immunity to it, but you illustrated the point that was right under my nose that I didn't see, which is, well, if we have no innate immunity to it, how did 63 million people not die from it who've had it? Well, we our immune system built the immunity and it fought it off. Now we're walking around dipping our kids in buckets of Purell, taking all, taking all of the immunity that their body wants to, or the, uh, yeah, the, the reducing their immune system by washing everything off. You know, it made me think, I remember my grandmother, uh, when she passed, she died in pneumonia, right? Well, I went to the hospital and she kissed me and hugged me and breathed on me. And I got the pneumococcal virus, I'm sure, uh, but I didn't die. Why didn't I die? Because my immune system was stronger. She was old and she was sick. And that's why she died. She didn't die of pneumonia. She died because of what you said, you know, the chronic disease is what loaded the gun. So I love that. That's such a great analogy. All right. So last question in this area before we get into the book, and, and that is actually there's two. Um, the first one is why, why do you think if you were to look at this through the lens of spirituality, through the lens of science, if you can do both, which mm. I think you can, why is this thing happening? You know, last year in February, I was living my life. I was happy. Things are going great. And now I'm walking around feeling like I live in North Korea with people telling me, like I, I, was, I traveled a couple of weeks ago um, to, uh, to Arizona and I walked into a restaurant and everybody was having dinner. And my friend said, hey, you want to go to the bar after dinner? And I was like, what do you mean bar? He's like, oh yeah, everything's open. Two weeks before that, I was in Atlanta, wide open. I'm in California. It's like I'm living in North Korea. I'm trying to take a trip. And then I said, okay, well, then it's an American thing. But I can't, I've had to cancel events in other countries because they're just as locked down as parts of America are. Why is this happening? Why with a, we'll use the word survival rate, why with a 99% survival rate, and you guess, you, you get what I'm going with this. Why are we shutting the world down for this one in particular, and nothing else has happened. Not the flu, not influ you know, the influenza, or not you know type two diabetes. We don't have a, a death toll, you know, spinning on CNN every day telling us how many people died of type two diabetes. But this one, we do. Why this one? Why now? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And just to piggyback on that last part, every year, not just you know the past year or the year before that. Every year, 
and this is from the WHO, approximately 650,000 people die from influenza just from the respiratory effects of influenza. This is not accounting for uh, infection-related organ failure and uh, seizures, and the list goes on and on, which would account for hundreds of thousands of more deaths for all the different symptoms or side effects from influenza. Nobody ever hears a peep about it. It's just like it doesn't exist, including tens of thousands here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And why now? Why this? Man, you ask from a perspective of, you know, kind of a meta perspective, a spiritual uh, outlook. And, you know, me, I'm a scientist, so, um, but I truly believe there's so much that we don't know. And that's where we're at right now, where we're at, it's kind of a battle for our, our, our livelihood and our, and our soul in a sense, because throughout humanity, throughout human history, there have always been folks who thought they had everything figured out. And especially in the realm of science, but the reality is they know nothing. They know nothing. I, same thing. We are pretending like we know. We don't know shit. We're spinning around on a blue sphere in the middle of the freaking get, like we don't know anything. Yeah. And we act like we do. We try to we use science to try to reaffirm and create some sense of certainty. And this is not to say there aren't things that we, of course, have discovered as humanity. It's a beautiful part of it. But we have to come to peace with how little we know. The top virologist in the world knows less than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent about the viruses that there are. They don't know shit. They don't know anything. And once we can get to that place, we can actually start to have a conversation. Because we're coming into this like we're so certain, we're so affirming this and that. What I've been talking about thus far today, these are the real world randomized controlled trials that we have. Not to say that things are completely different, but I have the wherewithal to know my cognitive biases. My cognitive biases, I think they're a little bit more mature just because if something goes, if, if a recommended application for the situation comes up that goes against normal human functioning, I have a red flag that goes up. Separate from other people. I have a red flag that goes up. Just like, okay, our genes expect us to interact with other humans. Our immune systems expect us to interact with other humans. Is this okay? And I'm open to being wrong. So it's a mature, in my my opinion, a mature cognitive bias, but I am very much aware that I have them. We all are operating, every human being, the driving force of every human being, the human psyche is to stay congruent with the ideas that we carry about ourselves and the world around us. It creates our level of certainty just to be able to survive and walk out our door. Now, with this said, why is this happening? Why now? Why this? <sighs> from looking at it from this broader perspective, I really do feel that and this is just my this is my this is my opinion. This is my perspective. I feel that like this this is happening for us in a very uncomfortable, unfortunate way, seemingly. But how often in our lives do things happen that we hated, that challenged us, that broke us down, that made us better. I feel that we're at, this, we're at a fork in the road as humanity right now. There were so many issues that were festering underneath the surface. You know, again, we were kind of living our lives, especially if we've achieved a level of success, but we are living right now in the sickest society in human history, self-inflicted. 
sickest society. We have over 200 million people who are overweight or obese, 135 million people who are type two diabetic or pre-diabetic. 60% of the US population has a degree of heart disease and hardening of the arteries. Uh, 115 million Americans are regularly sleep deprived. Only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. All of these things are known statistics anybody can go and look up. It's not okay. 70, but 70% of the US population is on pharmaceutical drugs. We're the sickest nation in the history of humanity, but yet we're already on the drugs, but the shit isn't working because it never was designed to work. It's a pharmaceutical model. We have legal drug dealers who are treating symptoms. These are good people. Unfortunately, they're good people, but they're trained. They're trained. If you take a very smart person, you teach them the wrong thing, they become world-class at doing the wrong thing and also propping up their degree as if this gives them a permission slip to do the wrong shit. And I'm sick of it, but Here's the thing. Okay, these things are festering underneath the surface. Our terrible, terrible structure in our education system. Wonderful people in the system, but it's training our children, teaching our children to operate in a world that no longer exists. Everything has changed. Everything. But yet, we're still doing this rote memorization. Bullshit. We're not, our kids aren't going to work in factories. You know, so we've we have obviously the, the education system has just been decimated by this, but it gives us a chance to build something better. Our health decimated by this gives us a chance to do something better. And I want to add one more point here that folks don't realize. If you go and look this up, Johns Hopkins University, I'm sorry, Johns, Johns Hopkins did a, a wonderful meta analysis of this. And they discovered that the leading cause of death every year in America is heart disease. Second leading cause of death is cancer. Third leading cause of death is iatrogenesis. Iatrogenesis I, might- I, I don't know, right? So I know, no, no, iatrogenesis? No, no, no. It's, 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 is that uh, doctor-inflicted uh, problems? Iatra meaning physician, genesis meaning created. Medical error is the third leading cause of death in the United States, killing hundreds of thousands of people every fucking year. And it's as if it doesn't exist. Our system is not designed, and I would argue it's number one because it doesn't help number one and two very well, or number four, five, six, seven, any other chronic condition. It's wonderful for emergency treatment. Even emergency acute infection can be great, but for treating and preventing the things that kill millions of people every year, it is absolutely horrendous. It's terrible. Yeah, it's, not, uh, it's not disease prevention. It's symptoms uh, reduction. It's, it, it's trying to focus on eliminating the symptoms. Um, okay. And this brings, us to, but this brings us to the point of what, is, what the thing is. Yeah. And this, what's governing this system, it's a $4 trillion a year healthcare system. Follow the money. It's money. They're primed to make hundreds of billions of dollars just in one round of vaccinations. And there's already, they just had an incredible congressional hearing with one of the, uh, a, a board of physicians who are arguably the most published physicians in the world, in this particular group. And they actually went and did their own controlled trials, finding how they already have antiviral drugs that stop this thing right in its tracks. And yet, they're cheap, they're already here, but the data is being suppressed because this new thing is rolling out and we got every, we, we bypass all normal protocols. We got the public to demand it. Please don't worry about long-term studies. Don't worry about animal trials. Just give it to us. 
Give it to us. It is brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy, but we have to wake up. We have to wake up. Yeah. Do you think that'll happen? It has to. I mean, it has to, or it's not. You know, like I said, I really believe we're at a fork in the road as humanity, but I do believe we are immense, we are so powerful and remarkable. We just don't realize it right now. And this is what's created so much frustration with so many of us. What are you going to do if they won't give you a library card, let you on the airplane, get a driver's license without a vaccination? You going to get one? And just to be clear, I'm not anti anything. I'm not anti mask. I'm not anti vaccine. You got to make a decision, right? Are you going to do it or not? What do you think? So to answer the question, I'm pro science. If the data, I'm a healthy person. Yeah. I have no possible reason to inject an mRNA virus that has never been used at large scale ever, never, ever. Not just, you know, this is a new virus strain. They're not even using that. They're do- this is something that works on your DNA. It's absolutely, it, it's, it's the craziest thing. There's no possible way that I'm putting that shit in my body. Why would I do that? And so exactly. if it came down to like this and that, like I can't do this and that, man, I mean, number one, I'm just going to set up shop and do my own shit. Number two, if I got to go somewhere else, I'm going to go somewhere else, you know, but most, many people don't have that choice. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing that I'm fighting for, you know, because I, I truly, and you as well, I could be in my own bubble over here, not saying a yeah. word, you know, yeah. here's five tips for, you know, fat loss, whatever. <laughs> no, we're right now. This is a, this is a trial for humanity. This, this is the time when so many people throughout history, they believe like I would have stood up and said something. You know, I would have stopped the concentration camps or I would have, I wouldn't have let them take the people. You wouldn't have did shit. These are the moments where most people who are sitting on the sidelines and waiting for things to pass or arguing in defense of the very system that has made people sick in the first place, you wouldn't have done anything. Do you but think- there are people and many of you, you know, this too. many people that we know there are some, there are some beasts, big heart, passionate absolute killers with, with love who are in this thing to make sure that we go in the right direction as humanity. We are not alone. You are not alone. Everybody that's listening, that's a part of this, you're not alone. And, but the thing is, we all have to step up. We all have to stand up and use our voice right now. Do you think Sweden got it right? Oh man. That's, um, That's a very nuanced and layered question because right now what we're experiencing, it's a case-demic. It's a case-demic as we continue. Okay, let me put it like this. Of the 65 million confirmed cases that we have right now, again, any epidemiologist worth their salt will tell you probably 10 times more people actually have it. All right? It becomes astronomical. We go from a pandemic to something that is endemic, which means now it's just integrated itself in the culture. It's always there. It is so pervasive, you know, but even that in and of itself, the testing, if you dig into that, the the person who invented the PCR test has been very vocal about how it is not at all appropriate in the testing of SARS-CoV-2. You could just go and find his videos where he's being interviewed. 
and saying how ignorant Fauci is, how ignorant the task force are, and how using manipulating using what he invented in the wrong way to frame and create fear. And this is not like again, but then what happens is they'll discredit the guy. They'll discredit the guy who invented the thing. Yeah, he's you know, and they'll attack they'll attack the character of the person instead of the the truth of the science. You know, so even looking at that data, everything is so skewed and so nuanced and so manipulative, you know, but the, the reality is most folks there have a modicum of health and, and freedom and a capacity to just live their lives, which is in and of itself healthy versus every epidemiologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, world-class physician here, they will all agree that the way that we've handled this, the treatment of this thing is going to be far worse than the situation itself, period. You know, you have a lot to be uh, proud of here because with this, you know, backdrop of what we just talked about, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is, is build healthy immune systems. And you are putting out products, you know, from your, uh, from your first book, uh, Sleep Smarter, to your new book, Eat Smarter, on ways that people can lead healthy lives so it doesn't fucking matter what is coming at them for the most part all these you know these you know killer commie bugs that are coming over from beijing that are going to you know annihilate us and you know in this new book you see food as fuel and so you see you see food as the fuel that it is and you recognize lots of interesting things about it and one of the things that hit me is how you talk about food as a social centerpiece for uh, some of the more important moments in our lives. And you talk about how when you were a kid, you know, you weren't as healthy as you are now. You know, you did your birthday party at McDonald's, you know. How do we get people to recognize, you know, everybody's going to get a copy of your book, I hope, how are we going to get them to recognize sort of those comfort foods and those feelings of love from what actually is good nutrition? How do, how do, we, how do we get them to understand that? That's a big question. You know, um, I'm, I'm very or, or grateful. Maybe what's, maybe, maybe what's the first step? Yeah, I, I'm very grateful for this coming out at this exact time. I did not, yeah. of course, I had no idea, but I'm addressing so many of the issues in this book that our world is experiencing right now, including yeah. how food affects our ability to relate to other people, our ability to perspective take and have compassion and patience, and even our proclivity towards violence and aggression. Whereas like if you go online today, it can be, that's it. Like people are just going online to fight. You know, and we've never seen anything like this before. Again, it's so polarizing. But the data on how our nutrition or lack thereof affects our cognitive ability and our emotional IQ, you know, our EQ is just startling. And so to bring this data to everyday folks, because there's a virility to books as well, you know, and this book will be everywhere from you know to every Target store in America to, you know, the, the, the usual Barnes and Nobles and all that good stuff. By the way, congratulations on going from self-published to what you just said. How fucking proud are you of that right now? 
I, I still haven't really sat with it, you know, Come like I, on. when I was in high school, I worked at Target, you know, and I was, <laughs> it's so crazy. I can roll up now and just like go and look at my book, you know, but that's the thing, you know, the, the folks there, uh, the decision makers, because I'm blatantly again, calling out some of the garbage that they carry in the stores, but there's such a grace to it. And there's such a truth, you know, again, like this is all, there's over 500 peer reviewed studies that I cover, but I make it in a way that's entertaining, that's fun, that's enjoyable, that makes sense. And this is the big thing. And to really answer your question, food isn't just food, it's information. And so I think a big part of the problem and why folks have struggled with like really embodying that is that in our culture today, food, when we're talking about, talking about nutrition and diet, psychologically for most folks, it's connected to weight. Food, nutrition, diet is connected to weight and is such a disservice because food is one of the most powerful, dynamic, multifaceted entities. It literally becomes us. You know, as I'm looking at you, I'm seeing the food that you've eaten. You're seeing the food that I've eaten. As folks are listening, the tiny bones in their ears and the electrical signals moving throughout their brain and the different aspects of their heart beating right now, the blood moving through their veins, everything that I just mentioned is made from the food that you eat our very ability to have thought, feeling, and emotion is based on the food that we eat. Our neurons, the dendrites, the axon terminals, all this stuff that make the magic happen in our brains are made from the food that we eat. It is that powerful. This is, we can't put it in this pithy little box and say, you know, this is a metric for weight loss, but we have to cover that too. So the first section of the book, I provide folks with the thing that has been missing, missing from the conversation. I'm actually taking people behind the scenes and showing them how their metabolism actually works, the different hormones involved, the neurotransmitters, where does fat even go? Like when, it, when, when you quote burn it, when you lose it, I take people and empower them. And we cover the specific nutrients and foods that provide the raw materials for those processes to happen. It goes far beyond the realm of just calorie management. You know, just get into a calorie deficit in the story. There are epicaloric factors, five of them, that are clinically proven to control what calories actually do in your body. And I'm making sure that from this day forward, everybody's going to know this, be more empowered. But we're adding more legs to the belief around food mattering by section two, demonstrating how specific nutrients directly improve your memory. Specific nutrients and foods directly improve your ability to pay attention and to focus in a distracted world that are able to reduce your stress and to be able to, uh, to execute, to be productive, and even things that are related to creativity is going to blow people's minds. And on top of that, there's a section in the book too, a chapter is called Edible Sleep, and talking about this very specific nutrients that are involved in creating sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters. You know, sleep deprivation is a massive epidemic today as well that's leading to higher rates of heart disease and insulin resistance and obesity and obviously just poor performance, you know? So we're stacking conditions with food today. With Eat Smarter, we're really making sure people know all the different areas that food affects so that now we know, and when I make the decision on what I eat, how powerful that decision really is. Okay, so, so much here. You know, first of all, I, I love the fact that you've got Dr. Amen, who is giving you um, the quote on the cover of your book. Again, 
one more thing to be really, really proud of. I mean, my God, can you imagine? Like that would have, you know, five years ago, if I would have said to you, Dr. Amon is going to give you the quote on the cover of your book, that by the way, is going to come out during a pandemic perfectly timed. You would have went, what the fuck are you talking? Like you would have went, you're out of your mind. So I just, I have to acknowledge that because it, wow, just incredible. I want to dig in a little bit to some of the mental performance uh, things. And I am, I want to bounce back and forth between mental performance and sleep and deep sleep, because some questions came up on the last interview I did with you that I, I was, I was ill-equipped to answer. The, the idea of, you know, I've got this, this whoop thing, this whoop watch, you're familiar with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's measuring how much um, deep sleep that I'm getting. And I was getting like 15, 20 minutes a night, not much, really, really bad. And I went about and I changed, you know, I put blackout curtains on and I, I got a chili pad and I changed the temperature and I, you know, I did all these different things. Nothing really changed it. The thing that changed it the most for me, for right or wrong, and I'd love your opinion on, is getting on testosterone hormone replacement therapy. I'm 54 years old. Um, and you know, when I went into the doc, uh, he took blood, he said, you know, your, your, uh, testosterone's 300. And I was like, is that good? He said, mm, it's kind of normal for, uh, for a 54 year old guy. And so I said, what do you want to do? He said, well, you can get it to a thousand if you want. And I said, well, what's a thousand? He said, thousands like when you were 20. And so I was like, is there any downside? He goes, not that I can tell. We're not doing anabolic stuff. So took it, noticed nothing for three months. And then almost to the week, my deep sleep went to two hours. And it has stayed at two hours along with all of the others, all of the other positive effects that have come with it. So I know that you talk a lot about hormones and sleep. What are your thoughts on doing things like? peptides outside of uh, food. Yep. So this is the thing as well is that everything is an option. Everything is an option. Everything has its place. Uh, of course, we want to stack conditions in our favor. Like one of the things that, and I was just talking with my oldest son about this, you know, he's a college athlete. Our sleep is directly linked to our testosterone. Like these two things go hand in hand. And yeah. And so what, what happens is kind of like going to a filling station. When you go to sleep, your testosterone begins to, to go up and it just declines as you're awake, right? These two things directly go together. And of course, there's things you could do throughout the day that can influence testosterone, but your testosterone levels also influence your sleep quality. So these are these like weird, it can become a vicious circle where if your testosterone is too low, you're not getting the sleep that you really need and you're not producing as much testosterone. And so, you know, of course, we want to identify the things that could be disrupting that production of testosterone. And there's so much in our world today that can be a factor. And so we can bring, quote, natural approaches, but we can also look to our elevations in modern science as well that can create a positive feedback loop. And so absolutely, yeah, bringing in uh, even peptides. Peptides are super hot right now. You know, but this is I'm just on, looking I'm at. On that, I'm on that too. I just started BPC BPC 157. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. Um, 
when we're talking about, and I just want to make this super granular, like, yep. There are base nutrients that are required to make everything that we've already talked about the different hormones and neurotransmitters, this and that they're largely based on proteins on amino acids, right? This is how, but in our diet conversation today, we don't really talk about protein much It's a battle of carbs and fats. Yep. But protein is, it's called, this is said all the time, building block. It's a building block of your, your cells, your tissues, your hormones, et cetera. But we really don't get that. And getting it in through food sources, of course. And then there's other interventions as well that are get, garnering more and more clinical evidence as to their uh, effect, uh, efficacy. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. And so what I do in the book is I really look at, so what are the, and you could do, I, I, <laughs> I wrote the book on this literally, you know, and I had pushed back like from agents all these years ago, you know, 2015 uh, about, you know, well, this is such a niche topic, but I saw it in my clinical practice that this was a thing not being talked about. And I saw how sleep deprivation created insulin resistance, how it created an inability to lose weight. And the data, I shared study after study affirming this, you know, folks who are sleep deprived, we get like two times, four times greater risk of having a stroke if you're sleep deprived, like it's, it's insane. And yet this isn't being talked about. So I made, I just really stood my ground. I was like, no, this book needs to come out. This is the book that needs to come out. And lo and behold, it became an international bestseller. It's in freaking libraries in Slovenia and Japan and Germany and all these different translations. I think it's like 20 different languages now. And it shifted the culture, you know, as you mentioned, like TB12, like they've got sleep wellness coaches now as well, you know? And so when I work with those guys, they don't even know where it's coming from. They just know the data that they've learned from their coaching program. They don't know that it's my language that I impress upon culture. And that's how powerful we are. It's not just me. Any of us can, can share our voice and our perspective and change the world. And it can create that trickle down effect to where now it's just permeated and become a part of the culture. And so in that, and I, I brought out all this science on, you know, blackout curtains and, you know, blue light and all this stuff and really, again, integrated it. Now it's just a lot of folks know about this stuff. And I've been talking about, it's been about eight years ago uh, when I first started to put the data out there. And, but in a way, again, some of this data has exi existed prior. I framed it in a way that makes sense because a lot of this clinical evidence as you go and you read, you know, these randomized controlled trials is not like, reading, you know, Harry Potter or some shit. Yeah. It's not like yeah. super adventurous, fun reading for most folks. Um, but I put that data out, but here's the thing. Most important, you can have the perfect sleep sanctuary, perfect pillow, perfect mattress, perfect blackout curtains, sleeping on the, you know, the chili pad and all this stuff. You got all the external stuff going on. But if you are deficient in the very raw materials that actually create your sleep-related hormones and neurotransmitters, you're not going to see the results. And so I mentioned some of this in Sleep Smarter. There's a small chapter. I just expanded on it in Eat Smarter. And so just a couple of them I'm going to throw out for everybody to walk away with today. Uh, yeah. One of the most important ones is, again, it's kind of like a thing in our culture. We, we kind of make jokes about tryptophan. And this is it, this category of amino acids. It's an essential amino acid. And we often attribute it to like holidays, you know, people yeah. eating turkey and taking that, yeah. that, uh, that turkey nap. Yeah. But truly, 
Tryptophan really stands out as a building block for our sleep quality. And tryptophan deficiency, one of the studies that I mentioned in Eat Smarter, is clinically proven to cause disruptions in your REM sleep. All right. And your REM sleep is critical to something called memory processing. So converting what you're learning even right now into your short-term memory happens while you're sleeping. All right. And improving your tryptophan levels in these studies was found to reduce wakefulness at night and also to increase mental alertness the next day and just better cognitive performance. We, and this is cited in the journal Nutrients, by the way, but this was found, again, this is a very simple thing, but are we doing it? All right. And tryptophan is also a building block of serotonin, which is a building block of melatonin. So when I'm saying these precursors to making the things that make the magic happen, I'm not kidding. Tryptophan sources, yes, turkey is a decent source. There's so many others. Uh, chicken, lobster is a great source of tryptophan. Eggs, uh, chocolate is a great source of tryptophan. Spinach, pumpkin seeds, uh, spirulina is a really interesting source of tryptophan as well. You know, this kind of super green algae. You know, so I put lists of like what are the specific foods we can find this in adequate amounts, like really strong uh, amounts to get these benefits. And so that's just one of our sleep-related nutrients that we need to target. And there, of course, like there's an entire uh, list in the book. All right. We are going to do a quick rapid fire rounds. What's on your nightstands? On my nightstand? I don't have a nightstand. (laughs) (laughs) What's the one thing that you have not gotten to in your life that if you just don't get it, get to it, you're going to have a bunch of regret? Giving all my potential. Love that. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Making complex information easy to understand for people. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? I don't collect anything right now. Uh, Definitely, I'm an avid reader, uh, but I used to collect micro machines when I was a kid and also collected baseball cards too. What's your guilty pleasure? Wow. I mean, this is the golden age of television. I'm obsessed with Marvel, Marvel superheroes. You could actually see right here. I've got a Stan Lee autographed case of memorabilia here. That is like such a, just, I freaking love this thing. It's amazing. All right. Last question. We're going to change it up. What one question would you like to ask me? Wow. What are you personally going to do and kind of focus on moving forward in the upcoming months to create more empowerment in your community? To such a great question, um, which I've never thought of before. But if I had to give you an honest answer, it would be probably to be more forgiving of the people that don't have this information that we discussed at the top half of it and not hold the amount of anger and resentment at looking at them as, dude, why are you being so fucking stupid and crossing the street when I don't have a mask on and you're freaked out that you're going to catch it and energetically putting that into the community instead of understanding that they are... Uh, falling victim in many ways to what they have been told. So 
I don't know if that answered the question, but that would it be, did. That would, that's that powerful, would be how man. I would answer it. Putting that energy of forgiveness and understanding. Yeah. Sean, it. you are a busy man. I should have blocked six hours with you or maybe hired you for a day because I got, I got a notebook that's filled with questions I didn't get to, but I think we got to the most important ones. And uh, for everybody, we're going to link up the new book in uh, the show notes. Make sure you go out and get it. I promise you, um, if you listen to anything in this episode, you know that Sean delivers. So Sean, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, Excuses are over. It's time to live.